Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godestine's Crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have back with us Dave Peterson. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you. We are looking at the gospel reading for the Feast of the Visitation. It comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. I'll read that in the English Standard Version. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those in humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. All right. So besides the fact that I think whenever we have uh, one of these canticles that we sing in our liturgies, besides the fact that they update all of this language, I wish they would just take the language from the canticle that we have in our hymnals and put it in to replace whatever translator thought they should update it with. But besides that, um, what's going on here? What's the context? And uh, what are we actually celebrating on the Feast of the Visitation? Well, we're really, we're celebrating, I mean, I think the Magnificat itself, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of recognizing the Magnificat as a gift that comes from this visit. And then, you know, the faith of these three people, uh -huh. uh, John the Baptist, his mother, and Mary, right? And mm -hmm. their, their faithful response to the Word of God. So Do you sing the Magnificat on the visitation? Do you put the the canticle from what is it? Vespers. Uh, Vespers or evening prayer in? Or yeah. Yes. Uh -huh. I think so. I think you can just sing it as a like a hymn. Okay. I mean, I wouldn't replace part of the liturgy with yeah. I mean, I think that's I'm a purist when it comes to that. So I'm not I suppose you could replace, you know, the Gloria in Excelsis, theoretically. But that's to me, ridiculous. I, I don't like that. <laughs> Just use it as a hymn. Yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah. So, so um, 
we were talking before we started recording, sometimes you hear that the visitation is uh, Christmas in July. What, what do you think about that? I think it's kind of dumb. <laughs> so I think it invokes the wrong thing. And maybe mm-hmm. it's just my own experience, but it yeah. invokes to me a kind of secular thing. I don't know. The word Christmas, unfortunately, I think just feels like it has a lot of secular overtones. So it's Santa Claus, it's gift giving, none of it's wicked in and yeah. of itself. But it doesn't seem to me if you say Christmas in July, people are going to think about going to a midnight mass, you know, mm-hmm. in the snow and so forth. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe so, I'm wrong. So in one sense, though, you know, we're always complaining about the the commercialization of Christmas, right? But in some senses, it's good that there are kind of cultural um, liturgies, so to speak, or cultural rituals that go along with with churchly feasts. And now it's bad if it replaces it, like what you're talking about, or when we complain about the commercialization of Christmas. But how do we bring some of that back so that the church year fills the ordinary days of our people's lives. um, And it's not just an add-on. Does that make sense? Yes. And I think we can do it. And I think a lot of homeschoolers in particular make a great effort, a good effort towards this, doing Mm -hmm. things like giving giving the children chocolates on St. Nicholas Day or or even something like St. Patrick's Day, Instead of it just being, you know, green beer, actually maybe having <laughs> singing, you know, the hymn. And so I think having special foods, having some sort of children love that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I think you could certainly do something with this here. I don't know what, well, the visitation is, um, is there's a, isn't, I'm going to, I'm going to display my ignorance. Is the visitation candle mass? No. No, what is that's candle a purification? Mass? That's a yeah. purification. That's right. That's right. Never mind. Okay, I remember now. I was trying to think if there's there isn't anything really peculiar about the visitation ceremonially, no, or culturally that I can think of. Yeah, you could eat a you could get a New Orleans king cake and put a baby in it and have it leap out. I guess you could get a jack in the box and then you know, have the, <laughs> I, I don't know. Call it the John in the box. <laughs> the uh, John in the box, the leaping, right? Yeah, yeah. Well. uh, there is this book by what Maria von Tropp, you know, the Sound of Music lady. Um, she has, I can't remember the name of the book now, but she has certain things to do on feast days and during Lent and during Advent that you can do at home, certain foods. She has the recipes right in there. So it might be oh. worth looking into that to see kind of how do they observe. I mean, they're papists, but, um, but you know, maybe... Th- they have something to teach us in terms of filling the ordinary days and ordinary time with eternal treasures. Yes. Well, wouldn't it be delightful if our children's heroes were the saints of old, even if they were legendary accounts, instead of Harry Potter? Not Mm -hmm. that Harry Potter can't have his place, but this would be nice if if the uh, metaphysical... Is he? I, I can't. Potter. I've never. I haven't. I haven't seen the movies, and I have not read the book. I've tried to read the first book about five times, yeah. and I get not very far, and it is so boring. Yeah, I cannot understand the attraction to it. It it just doesn't appeal to me. Yeah. So, and I like. I don't know. I like 
I like children's literature actually. Yeah. But not that. So I don't know why. Just just doesn't click with me. But people I respect uh love it. Mm-hmm. Um Rick Stuckwish, I mean, you know, smart people, but mm-hmm. anyway, I do like the idea. So maybe Christmas in July makes sense and maybe it would actually be helpful. And yeah, I don't know, maybe like you say then. So maybe maybe they do bring over some of the sing Christmas carols mm-hmm. or give give some small gifts, a sort of Saint Nicholas sort of thing. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I'll have to uh, we have the book at home. I should I should pull it out to see see what it says and maybe blog about it. There you go. Okay. So the context anyway in the Bible is <laughs> this is right after the Annunciation. So immediately the very last verse of the Annunciation, Mary's response to Gabriel, behold the maid servant of the handmaid of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Mm-hmm. So you really have this nice connect and then immediately now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste. So presumably right away, right? You know, maybe that afternoon that of the Annunciation, she takes off. Um, and there is this and it takes nice tie to get there. <laughs> no, she. It just says then she stays three months. Uh, okay. So I don't know. You know where exactly it. it Right. She leaves after three months, and then that's six months before Christmas, which is three months before John's born, right? Is John just three months ahead of Jesus? Not six months ahead. Yeah. Right? Oh, anyway, there's a textual tie in verse 45 with with Elizabeth makes the same confession that Mary did about Mary, that Mary made about herself, right? Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment uh, for her. So there is that relationship between Mary's confession before Gabriel and then Elizabeth's confession. So contextually that matters. And then as soon as the Magnificat's over, uh, we end with verse 56, Mary remained with her about three months, returned to her house. The very next verse, Elizabeth gives birth. So mm-hmm. that's the context. Mm-hmm. And in the middle, we have this visit which is interesting because there's we're not told like Gabriel doesn't I mean how does she know about Elizabeth? So presumably she knows through normal human channels. They're re- they're related. So she just heard the news, this this glorious thing that her this old lady relative of hers has miraculously become pregnant like unto Sarah and Hannah and these other, you know, Rebecca in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And now when she becomes pregnant in this new way, something that's never happened before, right? Yeah. She immediately connects with that and, and realizes, and then I need to go see Elizabeth because we're having babies that are related very closely into their office and what's going on. So, so do you think, do you kind think of interesting. they both understood this? Is, there, there's something yeah. with regard to the office here with what God has set them to do with their vocation. Absolutely. Yeah, they mm-hmm. both understand it perfectly, I think. There isn't any reason to think they don't. I mean, Mary, is she knows that this is the Messiah. She's having this baby without the aid of a man. Nobody, that's never happened, right? These other births are miraculous, but explainable, right? Um, yeah. You know, it does. the Bible doesn't say this. Somebody pointed this out to me recently. I didn't realize this. The Bible doesn't say in any of those cases in the Old Testament or in this one with with Zechariah and 
Elizabeth, it doesn't actually say anything like, you know, then Isaac knew Rebecca, his wife, or it doesn't. So it sort of leaves it. Um, but that is what happened, right? Mm-hmm. These weren't virgin births. So Zachariah goes and sleeps with his wife, and that's the way she becomes pregnant. It's unexpected because she's old, right? Yeah. So the barren becomes fruitful. It's this whole Old Testament image of the of the desert bl- blossoming, you know, all these things. Mm-hmm. And all reversal. of those, the great reversal, but the reversal is still kind of reasonable, Mm-hmm. But then with Mary, it's completely unreasonable. And yeah. she's not old. So it's not, res- it's this beautiful thing of, right, she's pure, she's young. Uh, but then also, it's going to bring her shame. Mm. Right. So that's one of the really marvelous things about Mary is that she embraces the cross. She knows that, right, who knows what Joseph is going to say. She is aware that this is going to be a problem. Who knows what her relatives are going to say, or David's or Joseph's relatives in Bethlehem, right? I mean, she has to endure that kind of the rest of her life and then ultimately watch her son be horribly crucified in front of her. So there's a lot of sorrow and difficulty that that she takes on with this, but she she takes it on. She's willing because this is the Messiah, so it's worth it. Yeah. And she certainly knows that Elizabeth's baby, right, is going to be something like something like Isaac, something like um, Samson, something like, right? Mm-hmm. He's one of these special babies uh, as a fulfillment of a request that, who's going to be a leader of the people. Yeah. And so in is, this case, of course, a prophet. But So is there something to, uh, and I hate to use it, the term this way, but psychologically, and then also theologically, that someone so young like Mary is chosen as opposed to someone old like in the Old Testament. Yes, I think so. I think it has to do with, I mean, it sounds sort of awful, but I, I think that Mary's youth and you know the virginity is a kind of purity. Yeah. There's also a, a freshness, right? Mm-hmm. That life is coming forth from this impossible place and it's coming forth in this kind of glorious gift so that Elizabeth has to be healed, right? Yeah. So to be barren is a is brokenness, and mm-hmm. it's a cross that she's borne all of these years, and so she has to be healed from it. Whereas Mary doesn't need to be healed; everything's working perfectly, mm-hmm. right? So there's this; it's just cleaner, I guess, or fresher. So kind of like the 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 tomb in no in which no one has been laid, um, right? The, the donkey, the donkey, the nobody, yeah. yeah. It doesn't yeah, have a pri- all that kind prior of use, so to speak. Right. Uh, the, bu- the bush that burns but is not consumed. Yeah. Right? So, the- so at the same time, is there something to the, to the effect that someone who is younger has uh, more zeal and is less influenced by, uh, by hmm. those crosses? Could be. Could also be a reversal of what the world expects. Yeah. We use somebody that's poor, that's inexperienced. That she's the mother of the Lord. Mm-hmm. That's an astounding thing. I love that Jesus needs a mother mm-hmm. and needs a father, right? Joseph's a real father to him and 100% in every way. Yeah. Uh, just because he's not biologically, who cares? The Bible does not care about that at all. Adoption is far more significant in the Bible, in a sense. It's more significant than 
than bio- biology. Mm-hmm. So right, we're all the adopted children of God. So right. that's the main way to be a son or a daughter. So is um is the in the ancient world the right of inheritance affected by that at all, or at least among the Jews the, in the Old Testament, or I don't know. It, it is a, for Rome. For Rome, it's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, they definitely have a big deal about adoption as well. I mean, there was this idea that great men do not have great sons, and that's why they would sometimes choose somebody they liked better yeah, and then like adopt him and make like Octavian. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. right. So I don't know about I don't. I'm trying to think of in the Old Testament even using the word adopt or, well, within, I mean, certainly you have this within the families, right? The brother, if your brother dies, you have to take over his children. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's that sort of thing, but it's all within families, isn't it? I can't think of a... um, I mean, you do have the sense in which, uh, is it Abraham who's waiting for a son and he doesn't want his servant to receive the inheritance? Yeah. in that sense, he's part of his household, but not from his flesh. Yeah, I suppose. So maybe that is a kind of adoption. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I was thinking, I thought you were going to say something about Lot. He he treats Lot like a son. Mm. I don't know. I don't know about adoption in the Old Testament. That would be, that would be very interesting to see. Yeah. So, uh, so getting to the text, when we look at how John the Baptist leaped in Elizabeth's womb, I mean, is is this an extraordinary leap, or is this the the normal um, kind of Kick. movement that yeah that a child has in in a womb? I mean, there's no way to know. Yeah, but it does seem to me that it's probably normal. That's what I think. Okay, I think he just kicks. But with the Holy Spirit, she knows and recognizes that the kick is actually a response to, to the greeting, mm-hmm. which, by the way, you know, is probably the word shalom, right? Oh, probably. So she probably, Mary probably walks and says, peace. <laughs> and so it's that same word that Jesus, of course, says in the upper room on Easter evening. Yeah. And the, the word peace, spoken from Mary, bestows the Holy Spirit not that he didn't already have the Holy Spirit, but it bestows the Holy Spirit uh, upon both Elizabeth and John so that John leaps and then Elizabeth speaks for John and also in some sense speaks for Zachariah, right? Mm. Who is maybe standing right there. Right. But can't talk yet. I mean, I mean, we don't know. It's, it's not recorded, but he could be standing there, right? I mean, you're, mm-hmm. whoever she is, you're, your niece comes over to visit. Um, presumably, she also comes to see her uncle mm. and talk about these things. But, of course, he can't talk. So, anyway, he, so she so says, So, is this kind Shalom. of like an undoing of the scene in the Garden of Eden? Where you've, well, right. Well, you have, right, you have um, yeah. Eve and then her husband with her. The serpent is talking to Eve. But now you have the the one whose heel will crush the head of the serpent, and and uh, even though Zechariah can't talk, John the Baptist is is speaking for him. Yeah. Well, so you have this. I I think it was Kleinig that pointed this out, but I don't know where I picked this up. That 
what so Zechariah was in the temple in the holy place, not all the way in. It wasn't the Day of Atonement, but just for the normal daily sacrifice according to the rotation. So he was on duty, and the liturgy there was supposed to conclude with number six. The mm-hmm. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, right? The, the ironic benediction. So that's what he does not say, right? Mm-hmm. So what he says instead, when he finally does speak then, instead of saying, the Lord bless you, is he says, uh, blessed be the Lord. But then even before that, the, fir- the, the response of Elizabeth, she also uses this word blessed. So you, you have this, I mean, if they're speaking Hebrew, they're going to use the word, you know, br- the same word in Hebrew mm-hmm. that Zechariah was supposed to say. Uh, so, you know, the Lord bless you. So here it is, right? Blessed are you among women. Mm-hmm. So there's an interesting thing going, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Yeah. And then he's going to continue that theme. That's Zechariah when he says, you know, blessed be the Lord of Israel. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of interesting. She's speaking for John, right, the prophet, but then also for her husband, the priest, and this repetition of the blessed idea. And this is a different word than the um, beatitudes. Beatitudes, yeah. But it does come up. She switches uh, to that word in verse forty-five. So in the in verses forty-two, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. That's the word. Uh, Oilogeo, right? So eulogy to speak mm-hmm. well, and so God blesses us. He speaks well of us, and of course, what He says is and happens. So when He says good things about us, it His speaking actually bestows good things. That's the blessing, mm-hmm. and that's the uh, that's the so that's what that word means. Particularly, God speaking something, God blessing us actively. That's the word that is used in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, to translate Numbers 6. Okay. Um, but then in the other word, like uh, the, for the Beatitudes, this word blessed, makarios, this has to do with a state of being. So it's not so much about the act of blessing, but rather the reality of being blessed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind so, of confusing. but So could you say that those who have received the eulogy of God are makarioi. You could. Um, or is that just... I mean, that's obviously true, but there is a, I mean, there is another way to do that. So mm-hmm. the makarios could almost be translated as happy, which I know is kind of a shallow word in our language, but yeah. content, satisfied, at peace, it, it has this this idea, uh, the beatific vision, right? To be there, in that. I mean, that's the, definitely the idea in the Beatitudes, and that's the way the words used also in in Greek literature um, outside of the Bible, as like to talk about Makarios, those who are blessed, are those who are are wise and kind of beyond human suffering because they are in the afterlife. So okay. that's that's the the sense of the word. So. You know, content, satisfied, at peace, at one with God, is she who believed, which is be- beautiful, really. And I think, in some ways, I think it's better. And so, the word "blessed" in English, what what do people hear? What do they think? Mm-hmm. I think they're usually thinking of material possessions, kind of ma- yeah, material goods, right? You, when we talk about somebody being blessed or saying, you know, right, it's 
it's usually a talent or a, right it's some good thing that we can measure and that we recognize as good mm-hmm. you know he's a very he's a great singer what a blessing yeah. right or this you're such a blessing to this congregation you know that's because you do a lot of stuff for us or you give us a lot of money right mm-hmm. that's usually the way we use it so here i think that's the problem to to believe doesn't mean that we're going to receive you know things that we can recognize as good yeah. necessarily from god but rather that what mary has by faith which has bestowed the forgiveness of sins upon her mm-hmm. is she actually has peace with god she is she she is what the beatitudes describe is there any relation here to psalm 127 you know behold children are a heritage from the lord the fruit of the womb a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Is there a relation here that the 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 blessing spoken, the good words spoken to Mary, yeah, result in this tangible blessing of children, which God always speaks of as something that is good, right? A gift, yeah, right. Yes, of course. And this came to her, all of this comes to her through the word. That's why that, uh, you know, oilagao is such a great, delicious word for this, because that's an actual speaking. So when Elizabeth says, right, so God, so good things are spoken of you among women, right? And good things are spoken uh, to the fruit of your womb. This is actually how God has caused these things to happen and the way that the goodness is being bestowed is by his speaking. Okay. So that's, I think, always worth uh, bringing up. And then it also works the other way. So people sometimes, like in the Benedictus, right? Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. Sometimes people will be like, why would we bless God or bless we the Lord? And they're like, why would we bless him? We don't have anything to give him because they're mm-hmm. thinking of it as a material actually thing. bestowing something, a material thing. But it, to bless is to say good things about. So we do say good things about God. We should when we say good things about God, we're speaking the truth. So it's a kind of praise, and that's what we're being called to do. And it's also, I think, again, really beautiful how it corresponds that we learn to say good things about God by the good things that God says about us. Mm. So again, right? He speaks, we listen. And then we repeat back, right? We confess, we say together with him and with one another what he has said to us. Even in some sense, right? Obviously, we don't forgive him, but to praise him as we've been praised, right? To bless him as we've been blessed. It's this beautiful, and it's all word reality. In the beginning was the word. So this is part of the image of God, that we worship God with words. We receive God's beneficence by words, and then we also respond with words. And this is a, I mean, this whole thing is a a dialogue, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Back and forth between, right, Gabriel and, and Mary, and then Mary and Elizabeth, and then John gets involved, and there's even Zechariah, the silent there, who's involved in some way, mm-hmm. and then culminating with Mary's, you know, uh, copyright infringement poem. <laughs> so... So is that how you preach about this then? Do you preach about like, so here's their dialogue. What's the dialogue between you and the Lord? Do you just put it kind of not asking them the question, but 
than telling them what that dialogue between them and God is. I think that would be a very good way to preach this, to talk about how it is that what blessing is and how it is that blessings are bestowed and what really are blessings. Mm-hmm. It's not as easy to count your blessings as it seems, right. because we don't always know what blessings are. So, yeah. because God does use crosses to bless us, even though the cross itself isn't good. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the sense of the crosses that we bear, whether that's, you know, some some affliction of some sort that might be very painful and we might pray for re- rightly pray for relief from. And yet we can see that God does actually use it to bless us. Or we can glimpse it sometimes in this life, but we will see it clearly in the end. Yeah. So because all so, things do work together for good. So you had mentioned earlier that Mary embraces the cross that just comes with this, uh, not just that she'll see her son um, suffer and die, but also the ridicule that she will endure because of what God chose to do through Mary, this almost unbelievable, incredible, literally incredible thing that no one is going to believe that what she says is true. Um, that what's the corresponding thing in our lives that is not exactly the same, but similar or echoes the very um, incredible things that God has done for us that we have a hard time wrapping our head around that this is, even though a cross, a good thing. Right. I think in first, in second Timothy, uh, Paul uses this to talk about the sorts of people that will come in the last days. And he starts out with lovers of themselves, and then Mm -hmm. he gives a whole bunch of other things. And then at the very end, he says, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Mm. And that's a description of unbelievers of the world. And what's the opposite of lovers of pleasure? Well, it's lovers of pain. And it's not that we love pain, but I think it's rather that we love God above our desire to be free of pain, mm-hmm. and we embrace difficulty and resistance because we know it makes us stronger. Mm-hmm. So the man of God, the woman of God, the person of faith, embraces all of life, ideally, right? We're not in a panic. We're not complaining we ask for relief, but we're moving forward with faith under whatever circumstances, believing that it all works together for good, that God knows what he's doing and he is blessing us. Mm-hmm. We're, I love this uh, not panicking thing. I think that's so important that we would move forward with hope, knowing what the ultimate, we don't have the near future holds, but we know what the ultimate future holds. Mm-hmm. And we're not in a panic because we got all the time in the world because we've got forever, right? Right. And so there's this idea of like, we're not going to miss out on anything. The world Mm -hmm. is right now because they're so obsessed with pleasure and avoiding pain. There's a lot of stress in the world over they're going to miss something. Well, if you're a Christian, you can't miss anything. You can't. Yeah. Well, and the irony is in the fear of missing out, they're missing out. I know. Because they're, they're missing out on what's going on right then and there. And you see that in like all of our distractions. Um, yes. 
you know, when we're at home, we want to be at work. And when we're at work, we want to be at home. Or, you know, when we're playing, it's just, it's never ending. And then we're never really enjoying the moment. Right. And we should enjoy the moment. Yeah. We should just, again, move forward with this absolute confidence and security and Mm -hmm. peace that we can't fail in that sense. Jesus is in control. He has died and he has risen and he lives forever and we're going to live forever and there's no rush and there's no panic and there's no right perfect love casts out fear. Obviously we're all struggling to actually embrace this. I, I mean I'm I'm not claiming that we've mastered this, but that is the the that is the new man and that is the ideal and that is the way Jesus goes. I love mm-hmm. how Jesus never makes haste. We ask him to make haste, oh Lord. Uh in other words, hurry up because we're tired of waiting, but he's not in a hurry. Isn't that interesting? So Mary makes it haste. Never I don't think Jesus made haste. I, I'm going to say that. I might be wrong. Maybe you can prove me wrong. I don't. I haven't actually done an explicit search for this, but I don't think so. I can't think of a time. I think if he would have, if it says it, I'm surprised I haven't made a bunch of hay about it. So I don't think he does. <laughs> <laughs> it's the sort of thing I would expect myself to latch on to. So, okay, I so, could be wrong. So, if we're not I mean, in a did, panic, Mark, I mean, there is immediately. You do have yeah. right uthos. You do have this. Uh, I'm just thinking out loud. Well, that's the name of this, but you do have Mark's. There's an immediacy, but it, yeah. So, I guess you could you could argue that way. There's an urgency yeah. in what Jesus does, but he's not in a panic. Yeah, yeah. I, the way I typically describe it is like urgency in preaching and patience in fruit or something like that. Mm. That we should that we should always carry with us an urgency to say what God says, but a patience in seeing the fruit that comes from what is said. And that yeah. I find that very difficult as a pastor and preacher. Well of course. Well I I, I talk about this a lot with uh with the parents of newborns, mm. that there is an urgency for holy baptism, and there's we shouldn't be delaying this. Mm-hmm. But we're not in a panic. It's not an emergency. We know that this child is in God's hands, right? Yeah. So there is an urgency because we want to take care of this as soon as possible. But we're not doing that because we're terrified that somehow, well, we just trust in God's mercy. And if mm-hmm. something horrific should happen, and we were being reasonable about things, you know, something totally unexpected, then, you know, we we proceed again with the same confidence yeah. that God's, yeah. So, so I think it's important. We also, I also teach this to the field workers. It's an important kind of liturgical lesson when things go wrong, which, you know, inevitably happens during the liturgy, that they're not to panic. <laughs> so we, when you conduct the liturgy, right, you are conveying a lot of things through body language and in other ways. And the liturgy ought to be conducted with a confidence and calmness and right, not in terror of God. So something goes wrong, you just you just deal with it, right? You bend over and pick up what you dropped. You don't make a big scene or you lose your place. You just take your time finding it. That right. sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. This actually happened to me a couple of weeks ago. You know, most of the stuff I have memorized and I just went blank. Um, it doesn't happen very often, but every once in a while, I was in the middle of saying something and I just went blank. Right. And it's, I just paused and um, you yes. know, looked it up in the hymnal and 
went on. And <laughs> so the people afterwards are like, is everything okay? <laughs> like, yeah, I just went blank. <laughs> right, right. But you didn't make a big deal out of it. And, you know, sometimes things just have to be acknowledged. I, I was talking about this. Somebody was telling me a story. Oh, well, I have a, a story of my own. I one time, weirdly, my nose started bleeding during the uh, gospel or the creed or right before the sermon, in any case. It started bleeding and it, I could not stop it. So I had to walk into the pulpit with toilet paper or with Kleenex, you know, like rolled up and sticking out of my nose because I'm just <laughs> clogging the, and I'm just, I just had to say at the beginning of the sermon, yes, I know I have a bloody piece of uh, Kleenex, you know, jammed up my nose right now that you can see my nose is bleeding. It won't stop. Try to ignore this. And then I preached a sermon with this in my nose the whole time. It was, it was ridiculous, but what are you going to do? But so I was telling somebody else this story and he was telling me, uh, something that happened to him, I wish I could remember who it was, that a bee flew into it up underneath his cassock, right? But right when he steps into the pulpit. And and so he he's just simply told the people, listen, a bee just flew up my cassock. There's really nothing I could do about it. I don't know where he is. I'm not going to go change. So I'm just warning you that if I get stung during this sermon, I'm going to try to not re- overreact. But... <laughs> I mean, I think that's great. Yeah, that, that this is the real world. We live in the real world. We're not, you know, we're not conducting ourselves as though if a mistake happens or whatever, you know, God's going to strike us dead. That's not the message of the liturgy at all. Right. We're not, you know, we're not sitting in a, we're not fishing with Jesus. I always use this story of the, uh, because the only kind of metaphor or way of speaking of the gospel that kind of church growth modern evangelicals know is Jesus as my buddy, right? Jesus Mm -hmm. is my friend. He would not be mad at me. He likes me. He likes to be around me. That's legit. That's biblical. Jesus says, you are my friends. So that's a completely biblical way of speaking, but it's only one way the Bible speaks, and there's others. Mm -hmm. The problem with only speaking that way and exaggerating it is it forgets that you can be friends with people who are not your peers, and it treats Jesus sometimes, right? Like you're, you know, you're in a fishing boat and picking your nose with Jesus, you know, and that's not how you behave with Jesus right. or, you know, hey, you know, to Jesus, hey, pull my finger, right? That's a, these aren't things you do to Jesus. He, he does require reverence and respect and awareness of his office and our office. And you see this for sure uh, in Maundy Thursday um, when he's talking repeatedly about my, you know, my father and your father. Mm-hmm. And he does stop short there of saying our father. Not that we don't share this father as our father, but our relationship to the father is different than Jesus' relationship to the father because we're not members of the Holy Trinity, right? Right. So there is this always this awareness as as deeply affectionate and comfortable as we can be and should be in the presence of God, he still is God, and there are things that are inappropriate and the like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do we? Get, why are we talking about that? I, have no, I can't remember. Um, well, we were, we were talking about you know not being in a panic and not oh, but not losing urgency also. Oh yeah, yeah, and, and being in the moment. So in a sermon like this. Uh, how are they in the moment uh, in this text? And what are the things that we do to pull us out of the moment? And how do we bring ourselves back to it? 
Like, so if you're preaching on this, you're not going to just say, be in the moment. You're, you're going to want right. to give them, um, I don't want to say life hacks, but you're going to want to give them scriptural wisdom to say, this is how you pull yourself back in the moment. Well, first of all, I think we need to say there is a moment and we do need to be present in it. Mm-hmm. So there is a call to focus and pay attention during worship mm-hmm. while the Bible's being read, while the prayers are being said, while the sermon's being preached, that we should be attentive to the things of God. Reverence requires it of us. And when we daydream or we lose track or we decide to get up and go to the bathroom just because we're bored, right? Mm-hmm. These things are sin. They are violation of the third and the first commandments. Mm-hmm. So I think we could call that out and say, right, John the Baptist, reverence requires him to respond to the greeting of St. Mary because she's carrying Jesus. Mm-hmm. And the right response is for him to leap in faith for joy. And the right response, the reverent response of, of Elizabeth is to acknowledge this and to tell Mary about it. Mm-hmm. She she could have kept it secret, I suppose, but it would have been wrong if she had. So first of all, to just recognize that there is a moment and that moments require things of us. So it's not a passive reality. So I love the scene at the abolition of man, the beginning of abolition of man, right? They go to the waterfall and the waterfall requires a response from the viewer. Reverence requires this. So I think to just recognize that, first of all, that there's throughout our lives, throughout our days, there's reverence. I think, you'll see what you think of this, when children wave at me, little, little children, right, like one year old, uh, when they wave at me or they smile at me at the communion rail or during the procession, I wave and smile back because I think that reverence requires acknowledging children when they do that. Uh, I try to do it, you know, I don't make a scene about it. I want it to be subtle. But, you know, if I have the child's eye and he's got my eye and then I ignore what he's done, I think that's inappropriate Mm -hmm. because children are human beings and they're not, that's not, they're not misbehaving at that age. They're communicating and they're in the community. And I think they deserve a response. I think reverence requires that. And I think there's a lot of moments like that there's a lot of things that are going on all the time that we should think about at a deeper level and recognize to be in the moment is to actually be active in it. So that statement, first of all, and then maybe some examples just like that of how Mm -hmm. do we respond, particularly, of course, how do we respond to the, for lack, for, to the spiritual things in the world or to the metaphysical things that, that we see physical realities Let's just say John just, all he does is kick. Mm -hmm. So she could have explained it away or she could have just rationalized it as just nothing, right? Mm -hmm. Or the child is waving at me or smiling at me. I could could explain that away as, you know, he doesn't know what he's doing. He just wants attention or something. Instead of seeing it as a deeper reality that that child is actually my brother in Christ and... It's, he doesn't just want attention. He wants communion with me. Yeah. He wants to be in fellowship with me. So to start to see the deeper reality of the connections and what God is actually doing through very mundane things. Mm-hmm. Now, um, so I hear what you're saying, and I think I agree for the most part. But 
it seems like that is ripe for superstition. Yeah, it is. But maybe we're not superstitious enough. Okay, fair. Uh, what because do you mean maybe that? maybe we're well. I think uh, I I think I may have talked about this before. I wish I could find this poem. Ten years ago or so, I read a poem about, and I wish I would have kept it. It was a modern poem. Anyway, the the thing that struck me was the poet was describing looking at clouds when he all of a sudden remembers that Jesus is going to come back on a cloud mm-hmm. and then gets this idea, maybe he's coming right, maybe that's the cloud. Uh, and it's this, it was a marvelous, it was, I, I, I wish, I, maybe it wasn't as good as I remember, but it, it was a marvelous moment for me. So I thank the poet for that, whoever he was, because now every time I look at clouds, almost every time, I'm reminded of that, and I th- and I'll I'll say to myself, maybe that's the cloud that's right the there. Cloud. He's this is it, mm-hmm. and I think you know that's you of hear thing. the train <laughs> horn and you think this is Gabriel's trumpet, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I mean, why or not? You see water, Take- and you're like, yeah, look at that baptism. Yeah, maybe I don't know. Is that could it? You know, could it devolve into idolatry? Of course it could. Yeah, because we're good at making idols. But we also should not dismiss the fact that we live in a spiritual world and that God is active and that none of these things are accidents, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And at the same time, we live in a spiritual world in which Satan and the demons are active. So, yeah, well, so what are the distinguishing marks? I mean, all the examples that you gave are examples in the scriptures of yeah. either things or images or rights that either God has promised or uh, instituted. And when we see the means by which those promises are fulfilled in us outside of the actual right, we're reminded of what God was doing in those things. But there are other there are other instances where it's just, you know, we see some sort of pattern and then make something up and think that that's God. Sure. So so would you say this has to come from a deep reading of the scriptures that, you know, when you see clouds, you're thinking maybe this is the cloud that Jesus is coming back on. Or when you see water, like, oh, this is how God made me his child or something along those lines. I think there's a couple of qualifications. Yeah. I like how, right, maybe this is the cloud, right? You're not being dogmatic about it, mm-hmm. but you're you're recognizing that God is active in creation and he has made these promises. So I think the kind of qualified language um, caveats helps. And then I think also the kind of humility uh, that we would come at this without full confidence <laughs> in that we know exactly what this is, mm. right? So, okay, I see a pattern. You know, there's three birds sitting on my mailbox. Oh, that reminds me of the Holy Trinity. God must have sent those as a messenger. Um, I mean, that would be going too far, right? This, the, the latter part of it. So mm-hmm. I think if I see three birds sitting on my mailbox and I go, oh, you know, that reminds me of the Holy Trinity. What a wonderful gift God has given in revealing this to us. That's That's legit and that's, you know that's a, a sanctified imagination engaging with daily life. But when I assign, you know, what if I'm too dogmatic and God sent this to me, right, right, to remind me of the Trinity? I think that goes too far. God speaks in the Scripture, 
That's where we know. That's where he speaks clearly. Insofar as we develop a greater awareness of the spiritual reality of this world, and our, our imagination is sanctified by the Word of God and fits into that pattern, that's the right way to do it, I would say. Yeah. So I don't know. So it is always pointing you back to the, to the Word. Yeah, it and, has to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The analogy of faith rules everything, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing, nothing can contradict the analogy of faith. Yeah. Okay. Not even you. So, <laughs> I mean, you can, but you will at your be peril. exposed. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, is that the direction you'll go? Will you talk about how to stay in the moment? Well, or- I hadn't thought. I mean, I was thinking about talking about you know John's leap. It was funny. You, I had that written down. Was the was the leap extraordinary or? Is it an ordinary kick? Yeah. Uh, so I was thinking about you know the way that Elizabeth interprets that. She has direct inspiration to interpret that. Mm-hmm. She's filled with the Holy Spirit. But uh, yeah, I think maybe this is a good way to go. Let's see. I had the oh you know another idea was I wonder if Joseph went with Mary. What if Joseph was there also? Huh. Does Mary go alone? It doesn't, I mean, she's only one name, but it doesn't say she goes alone. It seems kind of like she wouldn't have, I mean, she's a pretty young girl and she goes off to the hill country to see her cousin. Maybe that was, maybe that was okay and normal. I don't know. But I could imagine her taking other people with her, yeah. but not Joseph, somebody, you know, where's, and where is Mary's own mother in this? Mm. I've always wondered about that. Yeah, where's Mary? Or her father. Yeah, I mean, these are pretty important people when you become pregnant and are about to get married. Yeah. Um, anyway, I don't know who's there. Uh, let's see. I had written down here. Oh, yeah. So the blessed, and you brought this up already, sort of. The blessedness of women is the womb, right? Mm-hmm. This is the distinctive thing about women, the specialization that makes them extraordinary, distinct sorts of men. Uh, rather than the generic sorts of men, which are males, yeah. and Mary is not exceptional in this in this sense that what has happened in her womb is a miracle. Children are always a miracle. God is the God of the living. He is the God of life, and this is the way He promulgates life into the world, inculcates and promulgates. Right, yeah. that this is the means, and so her participation in this is is marvelous. Her submission to this, that she is the paragon of faith and submission to crosses, is is such a powerful and beautiful example for all Christians, but I think ought to be particularly appealing and meaningful to mother or to women, Mm -hmm. uh, whether they have biological babies or not. The kind of sacrifices that are required for the rearing of children is more burdensome on women than it is on men. Yeah. Uh, it, they, 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 they feel it more directly yeah. and that's because their call is to actually nurture these children and men have to go out and get meat basically. So is there a text in this text too, that uh, you can talk about how God's extraordinary actions in time are not contrary to nature, but fulfilling it completely? Oh, yeah. I love that. That's Augustine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the miracles, he says, he, he says at some point I thought, the miracles actually just speed up time. Yeah. So, uh, right, like the, 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 the lepers were going to be healed on the last day, so he just does it now. 
Yeah. But and 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 he's bringing them to completion. He's bringing them to what they want to be. Right. Of course, the weird one then is everybody's always, well, what about the water into wine? And yeah. I think Augustine actually, I think he addresses it. And maybe I'm making this up, but it you've seems talked to me about that this he's, before that all water wants to become wine. Water wants to be <laughs> wine. I love that. All water wants to be wine, of course. Yeah. So yeah, this is uh, uh, right. What happens in her womb is extraordinary in the sense that God's hand is directly involved. Uh, at the same time, it is sort of ordinary. Yeah. Um, in in the ideal sense, when everything's healthy, you know, and God hasn't afflicted us with that particular cross, then this is. And of course, we do. Our society acts exactly the opposite, which is so heartbreaking, particularly for those who are afflicted, that they act like you know, pregnancy is a tragedy, or and, an illness. Yeah, or an illness. Right. That's why we have a medical procedure to. You know, not to kill the baby, but to you know remove the abnormal growth yeah. uh, that's just part of your body, so you can do what you want, even though it has a distinct DNA. Right. Anyway, uh, yeah, I think uh, the goodness of life and of babies. Of also, I have down here infant faith, right, yeah. and that the infant faith comes by hearing. You know, John's example of faith in the womb and response to the word that was spoken um, is is of marvelous comfort and important, significant comfort for those who have suffered the loss of their babies before they could be baptized, before mm-hmm. they were born outside of the womb so we could baptize them. And so this, you know, John has saving faith. He has the Holy Spirit. It's bestowed upon him by the word. Uh, our mothers should be taught and to know that while they are pregnant and they are coming to church, their babies are receiving the word. They're mm-hmm. hearing the word like John did before them. And that's they should be comforted and, and trust that their babies are in God's hands from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Now, they sometimes these pious mothers get this mistaken idea that their babies can also then receive Holy Communion because the babies eat what they eat. Yeah. But that's wrong. I'm I mean, it's a nice idea, but it's not biblically accurate. The problem is the babies aren't eating and drinking. They're receiving, you know, food through an umbilical cord, and the food's been digested so that it is not bread and wine. Right. And so that's that's sorry, moms, your babies have to wait for Holy Communion, but that's not the appropriate food for them while they're in the womb. Right. The appropriate food for them while they're in the womb is the Word of God, as is demonstrated, ex- you know, implicitly here with John. Yeah. Any other? Oh, one more. Yeah, one more. List. I got one more. So uh, there's another nice thing in this with Elizabeth prophesying for John. Right? She gets filled with the Holy Spirit, and she does. She makes this prophecy about Mary, and John's the prophet, right? But he can't talk yet, and Zechariah can't talk yet. But there is a kind of correspondence, I think, to how mothers and fathers, of course, confess for their babies at holy baptism. Mm. We ask the question of the baby, and the parents answer for him. Mm-hmm. And we allow that because why wouldn't we? But yeah. we don't allow it later, right? When the kid's, you know, 13, we're going to ask the kid himself, and we expect him to answer in his own voice. Yeah. But it is appropriate for you to confess for your babies to, to say what they believe and to tell them what to say about what they believe even before they understand it. Yeah. I recently had a, a little debate with somebody about the whole, you know, uh, 
the, because we're giving communion to children, young children, mm-hmm. once they can recite the catechism. And they're too young to really understand the catechism. And so this was pointed out to me. Well, yeah, they're reciting it, but the, do they understand it? And I said, no, they don't understand it. And, and he was like, well, and I was like, yeah, well, you, you would prefer I don't teach them the catechism until they can understand it? That's idiotic, right? We teach them to say the Lord's Prayer way before they understand it. We teach them to say the creed way before they understand it. We teach them to say sorry and thank you and please and all sorts of other things before they understand it. Uh, of course, this corresponds nicely with the way classical education works, yeah. but right, you, you, you learn... You learn the stuff first, and then you have your whole life to learn what this means. And they're going to continue to learn what this means. They probably do. By the way, I think they do understand it some. Uh, you know, because wh- how in the world do you even measure that? Yeah. Um, how much understanding? None of us understands it fully. It's an ongoing reality. I don't think that that they have no sense of what the words mean. I think they have at five and six years old, which is, is as young as we go, um, the, uh, depending on the children. But I think they have some intellectual capacity and understanding. Like they know what the word father means, mm-hmm. right? They know what forgiveness means. They've done naughty stuff by then and been forgiven. There's a lot of things they, they understand. So, yeah. Well, and anyway, I, I always take it as the, yeah, they, they, the words for you hmm. um, require that you understand that you're in need, right? That you oh. understand sin. Um, yeah. So, so if you go to like the Christian questions and answers, the 20, I think it's 20. Right. Um, I mean, that whole thing is about, okay, if you, if you have the words for you, then what's, why is that necessary? Um and so there has there has to be an understanding that there's a need for things to be forgiven for you. So they have to understand yeah. or have some understanding that they've God has a law and they f- failed to keep it, and they right. they require this forgiveness applied to them for what they failed to keep. Right. So I mean, they certainly know guilt. They know yeah. what guilt feels like, mm-hmm. and they, you know, this is. At an intellectual level, I mean, yeah. they do. They, I don't know how much they understand it, but they do know what it is to be naughty and mm-hmm. to cry and then to be scolded by the mother and then hugged and loved by the mother. Yeah, yeah they understand uh, very early why Adam and Eve hid. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, what did, I was going to – oh, I like this for you thing. I've never thought of that, and I think that's profound. So – Right. If I say, if I try to walk up to some kid and hand him a rock and say, this rock is for you, right? He's going to be like, I mean, the question is, why, why do I, why, why do I, I want it? this? Why do I need this? What's it for? What's for you? Well, how, right. Whereas if I walk up and I hand the kid a cookie and say, this is for you. Yeah. He understand. understands what it's for. He's going to eat it. Right. He understands. And um, yeah, there is right. The, it, it, the problem with the rock example is it's nonsensical because there is no need for the rock. Mm-hmm. I mean, so yeah, that's and, good. And so for you to, requires, yeah. They, yeah, they need to believe what the for yeah. you means. Yeah. Yeah. For you, for you, it, it, 
it, I, that's absolutely right. There's, I can't, there's no time when for you isn't a response to a need if it's legitimately used. Right. Even if it was, you know, here is, uh, you know, $1 million for you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even if it's a, even if it's a gift of extravagance, there's yeah. still, it's, it has use, it's purposeful. It's, well, and I love that. It, That's really it, good. And so often the discussion about early communion revolves around how much do they intellectually understand about the mode of presence of Christ's right. body and blood in, with, and under the bread of wine. And I always try to say, well, but that's not what the litmus test is. The litmus test is for you. Do you understand why it's necessary for you to receive this? Good. That's really good. Yeah. And by the way, the mode of presence is the most difficult concept. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, you go right to the uh, yeah PhD level of uh, understanding. I mean, it is kind of insane. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember having one conversation about this with someone. I mean, you know, a good solid man, and was against initially of early communion. And I said, "Well, look, if it requires the knowledge of the mode of presence, I'd be the only one communing here." And even I don't fully understand it. <laughs> right, right. Because you don't can, have my understanding of it. Right. <laughs> you have no, a very simple in, with, and under the bread and wine. Okay, that's very simple. You don't know the the communication attributes. You don't know any of this. And uh, I mean, and he admitted it. I said, look, that's because that's not the point. The point is, do you grasp the for you that it's necessary because you have fallen short and lack the glory of God. And, then and that is directly related. And it is directly related to the examination then, right? That he can examine himself. Yeah. And so, so the, the, the for you, you is connected to the, yes. Requires all hearts to believe, not just that what Christ yeah. says, this is my body and this is my blood, but the necessity but of receiving it. Yeah. Right. Or the need yeah. to receive it. So that does tie in nicely to the, because that's the other that's the other key text, right? That, it, that you have to be able to, you know, this examination of oneself. Yeah, that and yeah, and that examination is has is the recognition of the need of of right? the need, the recognition yeah. of sin. I need. Are you able to yeah. confess no, your sins? Are you yeah. able to understand you've done wrong against a law, and yeah. that you need someone's favor upon you for breaking that law? And, and again, I think, I think children learn this pretty early. I do too. I also think that that it is like like the mode of presence, a far more difficult to actually understand than we think it is, and we continue to work at understanding it mm -hmm. because we're really good at sinning and at making excuses for it. Yeah, and not really thinking right. So it does require the ongoing constant effort and discipline in the word and sacraments that actually teaches us, mm -hmm. right? Not only of God's gracious presence, but also of his law yeah. and how well, we and that's fit what in we've that. lost with the, the excising of private confession is you know, one of yeah. the best things about private confession is you learn from your confessor how to confess, how to examine yourself because they help you examine right. yourself. So... All right, Good. Anything, All right. Anything else? Nope, that was it. All right. Well, well Christmas in July. That's the there, sermon title. 
there, so are uh, are you gonna have a Christmas hymn? Oh, we're gonna have a Christmas tree, Santa Claus prayed. <laughs> what hymns do you have? For I don't this? know. I don't know. I didn't look at the hymns. I don't. I don't think there are any Christmas hymns. Um, that might. I don't think there are. Might or, maybe it is. That's something hmm. to consider. All right. Okay. Thanks, All right. Jason. Yep.